Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Hey! We are without regular co-host Lee Younger. He is uh, transporting one of his children to do some good work at a Young Life camp for the summer. We wish them all the best, but that meant getting up at a time that is early, even for Lee. And if you know Lee personally, you know that that's saying something. So we will soldier on in Lee's stead. It will be a slightly less polished, less well-behaved version of this show, if such a thing is even possible. Yep. But to get us rolling on that, we're going to start with a Christian cinema emergency. Oh! A Christian cinema emergency, not to be confused with a Kirsten cinema emergency, which has been pretty much the last two years. (laughs) That was well done. Thank you. That was very good. Thank you. Yeah. Both pun and political, without Lee, the show has descended into total chaos within the first minute and a half. But anyway, I don't want to talk about that right now. I want to talk to you folks about a little movie, a little movie that's being put out in the world. Um, if you're like Jed and I, you're of a certain age where you remember a thing they used to make in movies called comedies. Ah, and there was no giant blue laser and nobody had superpowers and it was, there was no book tie in. It was a different time in cinema, a simpler time, a simpler time. They would tell stories of, uh, a ragtag group of ghost busters or a man for whom it was groundhog's day. Uh, other people other than Bill Murray made them, but you know, <laughs> you know, just, just two simple people trying to raise Arizona or a Lebowski who was of notable size. These were all things we put on the world and with the, uh, kind of the, the marvelization and the Disneyfication, um, for a number of economic reasons, this is kind of a genre that has gone by the wayside as things like, uh, Foreign markets have become more and more important. Comedy doesn't translate very well. You know, it makes many of them. So there's been a cry from people. If only we could get that kind of mid-budget, family, fun comedy back. And uh, some kind of malevolent spirit heard that. And that's where Family Camp comes in. Family Camp. Yes, Family Camp. The first movie from something called The Skit Guys, made, and I'm not making this up in any way, by K-Love Films. K-Love Films. Yes, the same K-Love that's safe for the ears in the backseat and keeps it positive and encouraging. That's right. The mayonnaise on white bread that has taken over the entirety of uh, Christian radio broadcasting are apparently making movies. Yeah, I like as an actual for real thing. If if this is new information, um, any Christian radio station that you tune to in your town and they're playing any kind of worship music, odds are about ninety nine percent that's a K Love station. Yep, they are. Uh, they are a thing, and they are tra- apparently transitioning into film. Best we can tell, uh, Family Camp is their second effort. Their first one uh, was, according to what we can find on the uh, the internet was just a propaganda hagiography about themselves called the <laughs> Jesus music and about how uh, contemporary Christian music started in the sixties and then became, and I quote 
uh, its transformation into the multi-billion dollar industry of Christian contemporary music today. Yeah. And everyone liked it, and it was good. The money is how you know that it is significant and important. That's it's right. not that it helped people or encouraged, you know, the, the, the brethren. It's just the money. Yeah, well, you know. As Jesus said, count up your, uh, your, your golden storehouses, and that's how you know you've really made it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Charles Wesley probably didn't make a billion on his songwriting. There's a total chump move. Yeah, was, you think streaming rights are bad. Getting that hymnal, you had to negotiate a good deal. Though I do like the idea of a really sharkish, like, 17th century, uh, re- whatever the equivalent of the record industry was, like going around to churches and being like, uh, you, you owe my man four shillings. You, you're saying <laughs> five, uh, five courses of Amazing Grace. Let's cough it up. Dude, I want to see a movie where it's the Suge Knight of that era. That would make me deeply happy. I need this film to exist. Hanging someone out the back of a moving carriage. Yeah, yeah, you got it. I love it. Yeah, that, that would be a great movie. Back to Family Camp. I'll let you oh, draw yeah. your own inference from that. Uh, <laughs> it does not have as strong a premise as... Uh, Late early modern Suge Knight shaking down people in the religious uh, music industry in London. Uh, I will read the synopsis from familycampmovie.com. For Tommy Ackerman, church is a great place to be on Sunday mornings if he can get his latest work deal closed on the back nine before the service ends. So we're one since then, I already have problems. Uh, one is work deal as someone who has mostly not had real jobs his entire life i can tell you that is the statement of people who have never had real jobs he does a business thing matthew a business thing he's got to close the big business negotiation yeah and to that point okay let's church is a great place to be on sunday mornings if he can get his latest work deal closed on the back nine before the service ends I think what they're implying, based on the trailer, which both Jed and I watched, because we do it for you, dear listener. That's Um, right. It's a thing where, like, he tries to get in 18 holes and then get to church. But the way they've worded that makes it sound like he's playing through the sanctuary. (laughs) And I kind of can't believe no one's done that yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's a different form, and, and hang with me, it's a different form of drive-through church. <laughs> you're not driving your car through, you're driving through. I like it, yes. Yeah, so the last 20 or so years has been a grab bag of really half-hearted and kind of lame attempts to, particularly from the megachurch, to be like, we're going to make church for men, and it almost always ends on like, the men's breakfast has bacon in the image that we put on Facebook. Yeah. Church for men. You tell if you if pastor's given that sermon while we're at the driving range. Yeah. This is something. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, I've heard worse ideas. Hey, here's what I'm saying. Uh putt putt course in the sanctuary. You've got the room. Just everybody <laughs> kind of moving along. Just in through through the audience while pastor's doing his thing. Could be worse. Absolutely. So uh, Tommy Ackerman is too busy doing business deals. Uh while playing golf, either on the course or in the actual narthex, we we don't know about that. Sure. But when their pastor encourages the congregation to sign up for a week away at family camp, 
His wife, Grace, believes that she's found the perfect cure for her imperfect clan, even if they'd all rather be anywhere but at rustic Camp Catawqua. Okay, let's let's pause there again. A uh, number of things here. Um, the wife's name is Grace. The wife's name mm. in the Christian movie is Grace. Get it? <laughs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> There's themes going on, Jed. <laughs> I mean, sounds like you're breaking down some high-level cinematic theory there, but okay. His bride's name is is grace whoa so there's that um and this is going to come a few more times in the copy read for this um they really keep referring to the families as clans and um don't do that yeah like there's there's just no good reason to do that yeah especially because you might ask yourself a general listener are all the main characters in this movie white? And I answer that by saying, K love films. <laughs> so there's that here. And this is one I actually want to pose as a question to you, Jed, because you grew up a pastor's kid. You have a lot more experience with some churches. I do hit me is a weak church family camp, a thing you have ever heard of. So I'm definitely super familiar with a week long church camp for the kids. Sure. But, the idea that like the whole family would go that I've not heard of before. Yeah. I mean, that may exist somewhere, but that's a new one on me. Yeah. That seems like, that seems like that'd be a big sell. People gotta, gotta go to work. I have to imagine that a, a big reason that uh, the week long church camp exists is so the parents can send their kids to the camp and then not go to the camp. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, for, for people who work for a living and like, you know, this is the U S so if you, if you get a week of vacation time, you know, doing really well, like, I don't know anyone who wants to spend the week of their vacation time at church camp. No, I feel like even for people who really like church or really like camping. Yeah. They don't want to get their, their peanut butter and that chocolate. No, we're going to keep those areas nice and separate. Yeah. And that is maybe where we ideologically agree with this movie, because enter narrative conflict. Ooh. And in that, in that guys, enter the Sanders clan. Stop doing that. Dr. <laughs> Eddie is a harmonica-playing chiropractor who sees himself as a Miyagi-like mentor for anyone who is not as spiritual as he is, which is pretty much everyone. Um, way to keep Good. it current with the Mr. Miyagi reference. Yeah. Not explaining that at all. Um, I like that their creation of the like annoying kind of, you know, from vacation cousin Eddie or whatever, you know, the overbearing Flanders S character harmonica playing chiropractor. Yeah. It's a bit there, weird. There's a lot there. There is soon. Tommy and Eddie are engaged in hilarious top this battles instead of being focused on their families who desperately need them. Um, maybe, maybe comedy movie, you shouldn't be telling us you're hilarious. Maybe you should let us be the judge of that. <laughs> but also the way they framed this hilarious top this battles. I'm sure it's like, you know, suburban white dude, like, uh, here's how much my car costs. Or I played, I played football in high school. I was a quarterback in high school or whatever, but it makes it sound like they're doing like, uh, battle hip hop dancing at each other. Yes. And yes, again, absolutely better movie. Yeah, instantly, instantly. If we could have 
so a hip hop improv battle where they're doing diss tracks against each other. And I mean, getting raw with it. I mean, one of those are like, Oh gosh, this is, I'm not even sure about this, but I can't tear myself away. I would watch that movie. Yeah. Christian give us the exact same premise. Christian dudes go to family camp. They don't want to be there, blah, blah, blah. But then just a, they drop a Nas ether level. Yeah. Just distracts yeah. on each other for 60 minutes. I'd watch that. Yeah. Just out of curiosity. <laughs> So we've introduced conflict. We've introduced characters. When all appears lost, Tommy and Eddie end up deep in the forest while hiking. Truly lost. Did you catch the theme? There are more themes. They're lost. They don't have They're, direction. Hey, I, I don't want to spoil anything. and I haven't seen this. It's just a guess. Do you think that when they're lost, Grace might find them? What? <laughs> I would assume so. Again, haven't seen the movie either. I think the odds of it ending in a weird kind of like a grizzly man nature actually <laughs> triumphs in the in the uh, conflict of man versus nature is probably pretty low, but we can't rule it out. Okay, dude, in the spirit of rage projects like, you know, Jed Brewer, Deranged Billionaire, I can't tell you the delight it would give me if they made the movie and all of the accoutrement, the promotion, everything. It's happy and lighthearted. And they go out in the woods and it's like 45 minutes into it and just straight up eaten by a bear, cut to black, end of film. Yeah. And for those of you who are new to the show, you may not be familiar with the Rage Project idea. And that is uh, <laughs> if Jed were, and I use his own words, a deranged billionaire, he would just fund <laughs> projects put in the world just for his own uh, amusement, as you can hear him being amused by it. And I've taken this on as well. And I think. Yeah, this existing because I here's the moment I want where you know Hit the me. there's a there's a link on the site where you can buy tickets for your church group and the whole thing and da da da. It's Caleb. I want you know you're on the screen and it's THX and the 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 trailers stop and it's time for the movie and the first thing you'll see is Caleb films and that dissolves and then directed by Werner Herzog <laughs> family camp. <laughs> Dude, I would watch Herzog's Family Camp. For that matter, if we could get the team that did The Revenant <laughs> to do this. Yeah, I mean, The Re Revenant sounds biblical. Yeah, I like the idea because there would be like, I'm picturing a packed theater, if you know, the after church crowd. And there's like three guys who know Herzog's movies who are like, wait, what? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I I feel like in the last 15 minutes we've described about a dozen film concepts all better and more interesting than what's actually going to happen here. I have to imagine I just don't think Kalo Films is going to front us the cash to pay for any of them. Well, and that's the world's loss really. A man can dream. A man can dream. So the other yeah, lost. Everyone at camp is desperately searching, including Grace. Grace is searching for them. The dads are forced to work together to discover a new direction in, if they hope to find their way back. So we were making jokes about themes, but then they just wrote that sentence. They need a new direction if they're going to find their way back to their families. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a laugh out loud comedy. Again, I feel like you should let us, the audience, be the judge of that. <laughs> Family Camp is the first feature film from the skit guys, Tommy Woodard and Eddie James. The cast includes familiar faces like, and then they list a lot of uh, non-familiar faces. 
I don't mean that unkindly, but I had not heard of any of these people or the credits they gave for them. And the last one is just listed as social media sensation. Oh, that's, I mean, that's a form of something. I mean, it could be. Sure. They're, you know, they're, that's that, uh, what was it? Uh, hamster or uh, who like looked over his shoulder there was a music staying in the early 2000s that was a social media sensation i assume they mean something like that well sure i mean technically if you've ever gone on social media and felt anger or disappointment you've had a sensation so at this point you are a social media sensation that is that is a very uh, again in the in the interest here of things more interesting than what they came up that use of social media sensation is far far more interesting yeah. Yeah. So we've got all that. And then we'll close out by looking at the proprietors of this, this year, uh, cinematic experience. And again, we never want to use this, this platform to bash individual people. We think that we think Caleb is kind of silly and it's a monolith that has really, um, been bad for Christian media and music in some ways. And people who want to be outside of that mold of the same three bands and, if we're being honest, we probably think that Caleb films in its attempt will do the same thing. Uh, it's film yeah. and pure flicks and all that. But, you know, to anybody who's involved, uh, hey, we all need a job. Get paid. That's cool. You get to make a movie. That's fun. If they offered me the chance to uh, make an awful, awful Christian movie, I'd do it because it seems like it'd be fun to make a movie. That's fine. Sure. Um, but the skit guys is the name here. Uh, Tommy and Eddie. And I want you to get in your mind, dear listener, the backstory of two people whose group is called the Skit Guys, who made Family Camp the movie for Kayla Films. Do you have it in your mind? You are correct. <laughs> um, so th- this is the uh, this is the copy, and I thought it was going to be really interesting for a second, and then it kind of falls off the cliff. So yeah. uh, Tommy and Eddie, who have been best friends since high school, they fell in love with acting <laughs> through their involvement <laughs> in the school's theater programs. <laughs> And for a second there, I thought, now that is a backstory for two guys who made Family Camp the movie. I'm in. I want it. Oh, they fell in love with acting. That's cool, too. Yep. Yep. The performing yep. arts should be celebrated. Um, so one invited the other to church. Uh, here, here it is. With encouragement and guidance from their youth pastor, the guys started to write and perform skits for their youth group. Okay. And again, they seem to have succeeded. They got to make a movie. They've written a book. We're very happy for them. Can you imagine how much everyone in that youth group was tired of those skits? Yeah. Because nobody wants, and I've been that person. I've been supportive of that person. The, the, the 16 year old guys first crack at writing some skits. It's not good. Not good. And about three times too long. That's definitely true. So uh, they did that. And um, again, and you, dear listener, may think, well, by the time you get to you're making a movie that's going to be in theaters, you're probably not writing your own marketing copy. Eh, You still probably had a hand in it. Um, You do have to get pretty high for your full marketing department. So that makes, with that in mind, that makes things like, since our high school days, They've been writing and performing hilarious and poignant skits live and on camera. And again, Good. hilarious is entirely a judgment call and uh, you know, humor is, you know, whatever it is. I, I can safely say there's never been any th- such thing as a poignant skit. 
Yeah, that's that's not really a thing. Only only in Christian circles could we try to pull off the poignant skit. <laughs> it's just there's no need for that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah, they made that and they spent real money on it and it's in theaters, so um there's that. But Kalo Films, Kickstarter, um, Fox Searchlights, anybody, if you're listening, please let us write a Christian movie for Werner Herzog to direct. We will do it. We will do it. We will not do it for free. People won't enjoy it. <laughs> but that's okay. That's art. <laughs> it's not meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be endured, Mom. Now that is a sentiment you could sell some Christian movies on. The Reformed Film Council, you're not supposed to like it. That movie didn't give me any joy or wonder. Good. I think... We've pitched movies before and like, oh, they'd be funny or we can make our own twist on them. I think the pivot is... Say that films, they build character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, just another angle to try. And on that possible marketing breakthrough, we will declare emergency off. We'll move to our first question here. If you have some questions for us, you can handle this all the way to the end. I'll give you some ways you can touch this or scroll down to your episode description and click the links you find right there in your pod catcher of choice. Our first question comes in and says, what can I do in my thinking so that I don't get resentful of people in my life? And I, I think this is such a cool question and Jed, I'm excited to get your take on it because there really is, I think such a sharpness to what can I do in my thinking so that I don't get resentful? Because uh, I think there is an acknowledgement of that of by the time you feel the resentment brewing, uh, in this case, it might be a little bit too late to uh, get that particular horse back in the barn. Yeah. But I really like the idea of trying to kind of bulletproof your thinking against resentment of other people. It's a cool idea. Where would we start with that? Love the idea. Love the question. If it were me, I would look at, in your thinking, giving yourself permission to say no earlier and more often. I don't know that it's true for everybody, but I think that for a lot of people, um, saying, saying yes to things that they didn't really want to say yes to is one of the shortest paths to uh, feeling resentful. And I think the funny thing about it is it's not always about saying yes to something big, right? I mean, it can be um, saying yes to staying an extra couple minutes at the office for you know the, the one more meeting or you know, saying yes to... Um, uh, taking an, an extra turn washing dishes, even though it's not really your turn. Like there's something about resentment where it doesn't, it is not proportional, right? It just, at a certain point, it's like, this is too much. And now I feel upset and unhappy about it. I feel, I feel resentful. And so I think if we recognize that in life, we're going to have to say no, eventually, like, you know, it, no one can say yes to all requests at all times. 
So we have to be able to say no at some point. The more that we can give ourselves permission to say no earlier in the process, we'll save ourselves a heck of a lot of resentment, I think. And the other side, I think, that goes right along with that in terms of your your thinking is to pay really careful attention to when you begin to lose the cheerful part of cheerful giver, right? The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver, and that's not just about money. That's about giving of your time, giving of your attention, giving of your emotional energy, uh, all any any form of resource, you know, that God loves a cheerful giver. There's a certain amount that you can give and be cheerful about it and feel great about it, and I'm glad to do it, and I'm, you know, it's, it's a, a gift for me to, to get to do it. And then there's an amount where it starts to not be great. There's obviously an extreme amount where, like, I'm hating this and I'm, I'm openly resenting it, but I don't know that all of us kind of have, have trained ourselves, so to speak, to pay attention to when we're starting to lose the buzz. When the fun of it is starting to leave the scene, when the joy of it, when the cheerfulness of it is starting to leave, I think the more that we can pay attention to that transition point, the more we can cue ourselves of, I need to start saying no to stuff like right now to head resentment off at the pass. I love that idea of heading resentment off at the pass because, again, it, it really is, especially with, with a lot of negative emotions, particularly the resentment. Um, the old cliche of a pound of prevention is worth an ounce of cure is really, really true because once you're in that emotional state, it's really, really tough to reel that back in. And to be honest, sometimes the, uh, the easier play is to let something pass, give it a day, sleep on it, whatever. But we often talk about thankfulness on the show. We often talk about, um, how people who are doing cool stuff and having happy lives, um, really don't have as much time to do things like judge and uh, harsh on other people's buzz. And resentment really, really does fall into that category, I think, of things that just are not going to penetrate as deep if you are putting in that proactive work of having a happy life, of doing things you want to do, of feeling content in and of yourself, it's a lot harder to, to get those resentments, uh, gend up because oftentimes, at least for myself, looking at resentment is seeing in someone else's actions, a reflection of my own deficits. That can mm. be because they have mm. something I wish I had, or they are a way I wish I had. It can also, um, manifest in seeing something in someone else. I don't like in myself and resenting Either maybe they get a good outcome, even though they have this thing that I think is holding me back, or they do this thing that I don't like about myself, but I feel like no one else notices or any number of things. Um, It doesn't have to make sense to really, really resonate emotionally. And when it resentment gets its hooks in you, it is going to try to start driving. And the best thing you can do is really try to inoculate yourself against that. And I think as Jed is pointing out here, a lot of that is going to start with honesty about yeah. why you feel some resentments about some issues that you need to, to maybe double up on and reinforce in yourself. But putting in that work on the front end, one, it's going to make you a happier person. It's going to yeah. uh, build those areas. It's going to uh, do those mindset things. You're going to think about places you are growing and things you are good at and some thankfulness and some gratitude goes a long way. 
but then it will be very hard. It'll be a lot harder to gin up those resentments because again, rarely are you just having an utterly neutral day or feeling good about yourself and your place in the world and the things you're doing. And then somebody does something and you resent them. Uh, we are probably specifying some terms here. You can be annoyed at someone. You can, uh, wish they hadn't done that, but the, that kind of festering, uh, resentment and really, really negative feeling is often about something that's going on with yourself, which can seem more complicated in some ways, but it's also a lot easier to deal with because you have uh, control over your own behavior and some more control of your own thoughts and certainly than the thoughts of others. So it is something you could be proactive about. And if the things you're being proactive about are going to make you a happier person going in anyway, then it's definitely, definitely worth doing. A jump to our second question here. It comes in and says, I'm on a board at my church. I recently had a question about why our church does something the way it does. The pastor's answer wasn't rude or mean, but it kind of boiled down to, this is the way we've always done it and it works. So there you go. I'm not sure how I feel about this. What do you guys think? I, I think I think another great uh, question. And Jed, I think it's a very interesting one because it paints in some gray areas here. Yeah. Because unfortunately, and we're glad this isn't the the case for our question asker this time, we have had a lot of uh, scenarios come on the show where uh, someone in authority, often someone with a, the title of pastor, was just a, a flaming jerk. And, you know, we had to deal with that. But when we're getting into something institutional and something maybe a little more complex and that idea of, well, they weren't aggressive and they weren't rude, but I also maybe feel like I didn't get everything I wanted out of that interaction. Where do we start with kind of unpacking that for ourselves and our relationship with the church and our relationship with the board and all that stuff? It's a great question. And I think that one of the places we need to begin is by recognizing that changing things, changing anything carries a much higher resource cost than you might guess. So let's, we're going to use a little bit of a silly example for a second, but let's walk through it together. Suppose that your church decided, you know what, we've been, we've been putting no thought at all into the brand of light bulbs that we buy. You know, we, we use a lot of light bulbs in this church um, and it's time for us to really be intentional about it and figure out a light bulb strategy that's going to inform our purchasing decisions. All right. Well, we're about to encounter a lot of costs, the first of which is a lot of time. Someone has to do the ideation of figuring out what do we care about in the world of light bulbs. Is that about the cost? Is that about uh, ecological impact and carbon footprint? Is that about um, the lumens that are output and the amount of light that they cast? Is that about color temperature? I mean, this sounds silly, but like if someone said we need to rethink light bulbs, someone has to ask these questions. Someone has to, to sit and think this stuff through. Um, and then once those questions have been asked, someone and maybe the same person, maybe other people have to go and research all of this stuff. Suppose we decided that carbon footprint, you know, we want to be good stewards of creation. And so we want to have light bulbs that have a low carbon footprint. I mean, someone actually has to go out and do the work to figure out what the ecologically friendly light bulbs are. But then we need to ask how deep do we want to go? Because there's plenty of products that advertise themselves as ecologically friendly and are not. They are playing some games with some numbers and they don't really do for the earth the things they claim they do. So maybe are we going to hire like an ecological consultant to make sure that we're making the right call with the light bulbs? This is an absurd example, but it does demonstrate that 
if you want to change something and you want to do it well, it gets costly. It gets costly in terms of the man hours, the 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 human capital element. It gets costly in terms of the um the money, whether that's paying people salaries, paying consultants, buying new products. I mean, to to change out all the light bulbs in a large uh, building is actually pretty expensive. I mean, that's that would be a few hundred dollars for sure, for sure. Um, all this stuff adds up. And then here's another thing that's actually a big deal in the business world, uh, and it's a big deal for a reason. It's really important. Is uh, there's a whole field called change management. Uh, most people are really reluctant to change anything. They're very resistant to it. And even after we've done all the work and all the research to figure out what the right thing to do is you still have to convince everybody else to be cool with this change. You have to convince people to embrace this change and live into it and feel good about it, or you will have a mutiny on your hands. And so change can, change is going to happen. It's a part of life and it can be a very good thing, but we kind of have to be selective about what we're going to change because any organization doesn't have the resources of time and money and focus and attention and emotional energy to do an elaborate search process for every aspect of their existence. That's that's not a practical thing. So then we have to ask this really important question, which potential changes are worth investing in? Given that we absolutely cannot invest in every conceivable change which changes do we need to approach methodically and carefully and and in in a considered and godly way? Which are the changes that we really need to get right? And that's actually not a trivial question to answer, if you can dig it, because there's an argument that can be made for all kinds of changes for and against. You know, this is fine. We don't need to worry about it. We don't need to change it. Yeah, but what kind of message are we sending by not, you know— People are going to come to this church and they're going to ask about how do we care about the environment? If we don't think about our light bulbs at all, what kind of message are we sending? There's there's arguments for and against all kinds of things. And so I don't know the pastor. I don't know the question that you asked. I don't know the context. But in general, the idea of we have taken this approach with this subject area, we have had results historically that we have felt good enough about to not try and rethink it. On that basis, um, we're inclined to simply leave it as is because we have bigger fish to fry. That's not an inherently bad answer. Um, it may be the wrong answer for the topic that you brought up, but it's not an inherently bad answer. And there would almost certainly have to be a certain number of subjects for the church where that would be the right answer. The question is, is that the right answer for this topic? Boy, I think that's such a great answer and a really important distinction to close on there what is the difference between an unsatisfactory answer and a bad answer? Yeah. So to take it into maybe a little thornier place, let's say you have a question about something your church does with finances, not, not where they put the money, but just, you know, this person processes donations and this person is the one who takes to the bank and da 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 da. And why, why do we do it that way? And process improvement. And that's, that's all that all could be great. Um, you might well get an answer of, well, yeah, this is how we do it. This is why we've had it looked over. You know, if we're part of a denomination, then the, the region or whatever signed off on it, or, you know, everyone on the board is aware that this is all above board. And that may not be really the question you were asking or what you were looking for. You may have been looking for, I think we can do this better. I don't understand why this is, but 
that is a big difference between we we really don't feel comfortable with you asking questions like that or well you know we we trust the lord to deal with our finances and we don't get into all that those are bad answers yeah then there's you know well it's you know this person does this and this person does that and they you know they, here's the checks and balances and it's it's probably not a perfect system but as as Jed's pointing out you know Everybody gets their payroll on time. We get our donation receipts out. That's what's important to us. You know, we only have so much time to think about everything. That can be an okay answer that's also unsatisfactory. Yeah. Um. So when we're in those gray areas where it's, it's not, again, not that we, and this is the, the definitely the implication we get from your question, it's not that we think there's anything shady. It's not they're trying to hide anything from us. It's not they're being dismissive of us. It's just they're not... I didn't get the reaction or the idea I wanted. That can be fine. That could mean, okay, maybe, maybe next time if we, whatever, we're on a, a two year cycle or something, I might go ahead and drop off the board. Cause you know, it's just, it doesn't seem like we're, I'm quite jiving with what this is for, but you know, I, I will still attend the church and it's no big deal. People do that kind of stuff all the time. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, it could also mean, especially if you're, I would put this out there, especially if you're a younger person or if you're new to a situation that you may not have put in the necessary legwork to do the observing and understanding how things go in this organization, in this idea to, uh, jive with it. You may have come in and I, I certainly did this when I was younger um, and I certainly uh, have known people have done this to you, you came, you've, you've never been on a board of anything before. You've never been on a, this kind of thing. Yeah. Gas do it. You're excited. And your thought was, I'm going to come in there with so many ideas and so many uh, smart things and so many changes. And I'm just going to blow everybody away. That that's a great, you know, enthusiasm to come in with also very rarely the way things work. <laughs> It is very rare for someone to come into a situation without an understanding of the kind of mechanics and the, the relationships and all that stuff and say, you know what? I think I know a lot of stuff about this that you guys have just been missing. That kind of doesn't happen for if it's possible. Um, and it can happen in a small way. Uh, I think it's very likely to say uh, that you might at some point say, I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm the new person. I just have a question. Why is it this way? And someone go, yeah, you know, I guess we did set that up a while ago and it might make, yeah, we could look at, you know, doing something else with that. That makes sense. That That's perfectly within the realm yeah. of possibility. But to come in, not necessarily guns blazing, because it doesn't sound like you were being aggressive either, but to come in and say, well, I'm going to try to set the agenda based on things that don't make sense to me. Well, we, you're the new person. A lot of things yeah. aren't going to make sense to you. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you... My advice, definitely, again, this is this is hard one advice from having to do a lot of apologizing to places I made a big, big mess. Um, for the first couple of meetings, it doesn't mean you're not contributing if you just kind of sit back and take it in and try to figure some stuff out and some dynamics. That's that's probably a good thing. That's probably fine. That'll probably be helpful in the long run. But I do also want to close on that point that we we touched on there of just because you go to your church and really like your church doesn't mean you have to be involved in everything. It doesn't mean you have to be in leadership, that you have to move up 
any kind of chain. It doesn't mean you have to yeah, be there for an extended yeah. amount of time. You can say, ah, oh, no, I, I, I like going to church here and I like, you know, whatever it is, helping with the kids ministry or working on the worship team. But uh, no, the elder board or whatever, that just uh, didn't really seem like it'd be a great fit. Nothing wrong with that at all. One thing that's worth noting, it builds, it's great advice that Matt's giving, it builds on that, is to say that where you can, trying to have a candid discussion with the the pastor and maybe with some of the other people that are kind of in senior leadership on the board of just asking, what do you want this to be? Like, what what are you looking for this to be? Because, you know, by by law in the United States, like any nonprofit organization has to have a board and, um, you know, basically all churches have boards. And every board's a little bit different. There are plenty of them where like, dude, we're looking for you to rubber stamp what the person in charge says. We're not looking for anything other than that. There's some boards where um, it's it's kind of a love fest. You know, we, we're, we're all here just to talk about how great everything is and, and cheer on what we're doing. There's other boards where it's like, we're in a season where we want to revolutionize things. We've been doing things, you know, we've been stuck in the 20th century, man, and we want to move things forward. All of those are completely different experiences. And trying to have some candid discussions with with the people who are kind of at the at the top of that board hierarchy of like, what are you looking for? What What is this meant to be? Um, because if there's if you're looking to really shake things up and what they want is somebody that'll kind of rubber stamp things, then that's probably a terrible fit. And it's it's better that that you know that um, if what they are looking for is someone who can, you know, kind of just be an encourager and whatnot, you know, maybe that's something you're open to. Maybe it's not. But this is one of the things where communication is key. The, the more that you guys can talk through what they want, what you feel like you can offer, I think the, the more likely you are to land on something everybody can feel good about. That's really, really sharp. A, a couple of things I would, I would add to that that I think will, will help with that process. One is just because they want something in some, one of those kind of dynamics that Jez is describing there in one area doesn't mean they want it in all areas. Yeah. Definitely. And just because they want it from someone doesn't mean they want it from everyone. So maybe, maybe let's say you are a young person and they brought you on this board and you are, you're a, you're a technical person, you're a computer coder. And they think, you know what, we, we might want to think about like, do we need an app or do we need to like spruce up the website? And gosh, we think John's just going to be the the right person to look at that. That's totally cool. When it comes time to the agenda point on the meeting of, you know, the church website, that may be the time for you to really. Uh, flesh knowledge and be the, be the person when they're talking about, you know, the, the children's curriculum, you, you don't have to speak up about that. They're not, <laughs> they might not be looking for you to be the person who speaks up about that. That's cool. Uh, that's, and again, pr- pretty common in these kind of dynamics that everybody finds their little niche over time. And in a perfect world and in a, in a well-run organization, exactly what Jez is describing there, that would be something people could put into words. Yeah. Someone could say, well, you for the most part, we see our our committee or our elder board or our council or whatever as an encourager and an occasional uh, left and right limits on the, our pastor. You know, pastor comes in, sets the agenda. We say we think it's good or maybe add this little tweak. And on a very, very rare occasion where there's some just out of left field and a couple of us prayed about it, you know, the most senior member of the board will will put their hand up and say, pastor, have we really thought this all the way through? That's fine. That's a functional dynamic. Um, and sometimes it is, you know, where there are some denominations run it is, you know, the even the most senior pastor is just one member of this board and they have one vote. And we do everything by democracy, and that's just how that goes. And there's there's lots of stuff in between. 
So in an ideal world, you could ask, hey, pastor, what do you want this pastor or, you know, elder or deacon or whatever? What do you want this to be? And they could outline that to a certain extent. Sometimes they might say, oh, we want a free exchange of ideas and everybody. And that's eh, not they want to want that. Yeah, that's a good. Call. Necessarily want it. So that goes again to communication combined with observation. Yeah, is yeah. often a great way to get a read on a dynamic on things going forward. And uh, again, that's over time. It, 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 I know it can also feel if this is a thing that meets like uh, monthly or quarterly or whatever to think like, Oh gosh, I'm not doing anything. I'm not contributing. I'm not, you know, digging in. It's fine. You know, you, they, they ask you to be on there for a reason. If you feel like you're getting some out of it and it's worth your, the time investment, it can be a good thing to keep doing. You're not under any pressure to do that, but you're also not under any impression to like, get results for the next quarter right now. That's tends to not be how that stuff works. We're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, how do I acknowledge the mistakes I've made without slipping into letting my mistakes define me? Another very, very cool question. And Jed, where we kick off with this? It is a great question. And I think, I don't know if this is true for you as the question asker, but I, I think that this, the following dynamic is often true when people are, um, kind of considering stuff related to this is a sense of, man, I really don't want to acknowledge my mistakes, but I kind of feel like I have to. So like, what's the way where I can technically have acknowledged them, but you know, as little as possible. My question for someone from that mindset and perhaps for you is why not acknowledge your mistakes? Why not own up to the things that you have been wrong about? I can tell you for sure, there's an incredible amount of freedom in admitting you were wrong. I want you to think about that for a second. There's an incredible amount of freedom in admitting you were wrong. Oh no, my rightness used to be the thing that binded the universe together, but now I'm just some guy. This is so relaxing. Yeah, yeah. I, as a thought experiment, for real, I want you to think about what do you think the downsides of admitting that you were wrong would be? I, I want you to think about that because, yeah, we can imagine extreme cases where there may be legal implications. We, we can set those aside because that's not the case for most people. There could be, again, in very extreme cases, stuff that would impact your career. We, we can set those aside for a second, because they're, they're not very common. Yes, if admitting you were wrong might have a legal impact or career impact, we want to look at that more closely. But let's set those aside, because those are definitely not the, ma the majority of things the majority of the time. If a police officer is asking you what you did wrong, uh, wait for a lawyer. But in normal interpersonal communications, we can, we can be a little more flexible. Exactly right. So what would the downside of admitting that you were wrong, what would it be? And then I want you, as best you can, to construct in your head a scale and ask the following, what is relief work to you? What is relief, what is relief worth to you? Because I think relief should be worth a lot to you. I think that a sense of peace should be worth a lot to you. Because peace is really valuable, man. Peace is like the one thing that money cannot buy for sure. And one of the shortest paths to peace and to relief is just admitting when you were wrong. And I don't know for sure because I'm not inside your head, but I imagine that that much of the reasons would be like, you know, what do I have to lose would be a sense of, well, people will think badly of me and people will, they will look down on me and they, they will make fun of me. 
here's the thing, dude. If you've been really wrong about stuff um, in a way that, like, might be detectable by others, they already know that you are wrong, and they're already joking about your wrongness behind your back. That is for sure going on. If you have been wrong in a way that others can detect and you're refusing to admit it or acknowledge it, they are mocking you behind your back about your wrongness. So the things that you're afraid might happen, they are already happening. Most of the stuff on the, this is why I could never admit I was wrong is because these things might happen. Most of those things are already happening in your life. So the one thing that isn't happening is you getting the relief of just admitting that you were wrong. And you ask, how do I acknowledge the mistakes I made without slipping into letting my mistakes define me? I don't really know what it would mean to let your mistakes define you, except that if you are constructing a prison of your life, a prison of a life for yourself to keep from having to admit you are wrong, that is your mistakes defining you. The refusal to own up to them, that is your mistakes defining you. The one path that for sure there's a chance where they won't is where you admit them. Like for sure, for sure. And I think that's the thing that we need to get fixed in our heads. I think that's, that's such a great point. I was talking to somebody about a very similar situation recently, and they had a really cool observation where they said, I, tr- I try to think in terms of I did, but it's a red flag when I get to, therefore, I am. And, uh, you know, you may have heard in a context of talking about uh, race or gender identity or uh, disability, the idea of person-first language. So you would not describe someone as a disabled person. You would describe them as a person with a disability. You would not describe someone as a, as homeless. You would describe them as a person who is unhoused. And it seems like a small ling- linguistical uh, adjustment, and it certainly is. But the, the idea is um, the way we discuss things has a strong impact on how we think about them and how we feel about them. So when we, when we talk about a person, if we... It's, can be very, very easily to stop acknowledging that they are a person and just see them as some kind of other identifier. Um, and you can do that with yourself very, very easily. You can go from, oh, I, I messed this. I'm a person who messed this thing up at work because I wasn't paying attention to, I always screw everything up and I just never am going to get this right. And it's a small thing to pull out. I am a person who messed this up to, I am a screw up. I not am a full human being with, uh, you know, experiences and strengths and weaknesses who did X, but I am the type of person who does X. That is what defines me. That's where we take that kind of that slippery slope from a person who did a thing to a person who is defined by that thing. And it really can be a thing to, I'd need to fight back against, but, uh, and I'm going to tie it in with uh, what Jed was saying there with the ease of admitting uh, when you screw up, because if you're just a person then people screw up, yeah, that's fairly, it's one of the defining characteristics, but it is this weird thing where uh, ego is the thing that leads to the self-hatred in, if you really feel that, oh, I I did this wrong thing, or I am surprised by this, or I can't believe I haven't gotten this figured out yet, that I think that negative feeling comes from a tension of, and of course I should, 
Yeah. I should know how to do this. I should have figured this out by that. I should not be doing this anymore. And uh, as often is the case when you're asked a question about uh, or put a scenario of should says who. If you just kind of made your own arbitrary standard up that you're failing to meet, then that is that is not the the quickest path to happiness. And uh, we should we should abandon that because uh, we, we've often talked about this in the sense of like uh, the, the kind of the theolo- theology around sin. But I think it applies to just your self-definition in a lot of ways. When you stop being surprised by your sin, you find out sin has a whole lot less power over you. Yeah. In the same way, when you stop being surprised when you mess something up or you stop uh, kind of, I can't believe I did X, Y, Z. Why not? What if someone else did it? There'd probably be a reason. Like, uh, as, we t- as we often talk about on the show, most people come by the- their uh, mistakes pretty honestly. Uh, you're- most people are doing the best they can with the best ideas they've got. They can be colossally wrong because they don't know what they're doing, but very few people get up and say, eh, I know I should do A, but I'm going to do B instead. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe that happened, but, you know, Jed and I have worked for a lot of years with a lot of people who have uh, committed criminal acts and uh, done hard drugs and made every, about, about every kind of mistake you can make. And uh, I've yet to hear someone who got up one day and said, I considered not smoking crack and stealing to get money for the crack. But then I thought, yeah, maybe I'll give it another whirl. See what happens. <laughs> uh, normally you're in a situation. You've got a, you've got an idea. You're trying to work at angle. It doesn't work out, but eh, lots of stuff doesn't work out. That's okay. And maybe what we, what we need to do to get to a healthy self-definition is start by, and this is going to sound a little Buddhist, but, but go with me. Start by trying to let go of any definition and see what arises. Cause you can certainly define yourself too low. You can certainly define yourself a little too stringently and a little too uh, hi- higher than you reasonably should, and that kind of leads to the bad feelings again. So, if you, what if you started off as just a guy? I use yeah. guy in the gender neutral. You know, I'm just a person doing their best, and sometimes that goes pretty well, and sometimes my best is, well, not great, but my best. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's fine, and I. I think your perception of yourself, particularly in relationship to God and in relationship to, to, to Jesus can be revolutionized. If you can embrace, I'm just a person like anyone else with the strengths and weaknesses. And God loves me in this holy, unique, holy, passionate, uh, defining way, regardless of my ordinariness, I'm just an ordinary person. And but it is that relationship that is something extraordinary that makes me unique. We we talk on Jen and I've talked a lot in private, and we talk about the show of the idea that uh, everyone is special, but no one's unique. Yeah, it's kind of you. You are definitely valued and and uh, wholly special in the world. And you know, God knit you from your inner uh, in your innermost being, but also you're just a person like the rest of us and. I know those sound like weirdly antithetical uh, ideas, but they really come, if you can wrap your head around them in some small way, they can really come together too, as Jed pointed out, give you a lot of peace when it comes to not doing everything perfectly. Okay, if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com, slash ask, if you want to keep that entirely anonymous. 
take you out with the song this week. Since he could not be with us, we'll take out the little Lee. This is Lee's take on I Need Thee Every Hour. That classic camp. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing we can do about it.